This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by my great friend, Rabbi David Wolpe. Rabbi Wolpe is the Max Webb Senior Rabbi at Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. He has been named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek and one of the most 50 influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. In addition to being such an accomplished congregational rabbi, David Wolpe is perhaps the greatest Torah commentator in the English language today. He has more than 10 years of sermons on the Temple Sinai website, and they are an anthology of how the deepest Torah understanding manifests in the Torah being a guidebook and an endlessly fascinating one of that with direction regarding how to live better, happier, and more meaningful lives today. I do not know how Rabbi Wolpe delivers genuine masterpieces, each of which could be a career-defining performance, each of which is full of wisdom from Jewish and secular sources, great learning, and sensitivity each week, year after year, decade after decade, but he does. Moreover, David Wolpe is an outstanding chess player who is a sometimes partner of my nine-year-old son, Elijah, on chess.com. I asked Elijah one morning how he did against David Wolpe the night before, and he said that Rabbi Wolpe told him at around 11.30 p.m. to stop playing and go to bed. So I thank Rabbi Wolpe for many things, <laughs> including for doing what I should have done as a father on that evening. <laughs> oh. Thank you. That was the most wonderful introduction I have ever had in my life. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on The Rabbi's Husband and for uh, our many years of friendship, which began through United Hatzalah when Ellie Beer introduced us. It's exactly right. It was Ellie Beer and, and Bert Cohen who both introduced us. That's right. And Bert Cohen actually introduced me to Ellie Beer. So I guess it all stems from Bert. Right. But it's, it's wonderful to be here. And I love the format of the podcast. I think it's brilliant. And I can't believe that nobody's ever done it. Oh, thank you. It's a great idea. And you pose a really difficult question, which is which one verse do you want to hold close and talk about? For, for you, David, I mean, you, I was going to suggest that you just open the Bible and, po- and point your finger to the first thing. And <laughs> that would be an interesting exercise. But instead, you chose 1 Kings 19. 11 to 13. So please tell us what happens there and uh, why it's so significant to you. Okay, so the background of this is that the Israelites are worshiping Baal, who is the Canaanite god, and Elijah comes along and proposes this test. He says to them, you know, I'm going to put an offering and you put an offering, see if uh, your gods will accept the offering. And of course, they scream and they cut themselves and nothing happens. So Elijah, in, in a wonderful passage, he starts mocking them. He says, maybe you got to sleep. You know, maybe you took a vacation. He's basically trash talking. Yeah, he's trash talking. Exactly. And then he, he does the same thing. And a huge fire comes out of the sky and takes up the offering. But then, of course, Elijah realizes that his life is in danger, that Jezebel is going to kill him, who is the queen at the time. And so he runs away to the forest. And there he's so depressed, he wants to die. And an angel comes along and makes him feel better. It's a very Jewish scene. He says to Elijah, eat something. (laughs) And that shows that the angel is Jewish. So he eats something, and then he goes to the mountain. And obviously, that's where we want to get to, so I'm skipping some things. And there he has the moment of revelation. And there are very few moments of revelation described that the actual experience of the prophet 
is described, usually what you get is the result, the words of the revelation. But here you get the nature of it. And it says, and I want to read, it says, stand on the mountain before the Lord and the Lord passed by. There was a great and mighty wind splitting mountains and shattering rocks by the power of the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a kol de mamadaka. We will get to what that means. Usually it's translated as a still small voice, although I'd like to translate it differently. It says, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his mantle about his face. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. A voice addressed him, why are you here, Elijah? And the first thing I want to say is, that when Elijah says, I'm here because I love you and the people aren't good, God says, go back, which is so important. And it says something about Jews and Jewish leadership, which is you're not allowed to go off on a mountain and criticize people. You have to go back and you have to be involved and you have to be there. And so the result of the revelation is to tell Elijah to stand up to the challenge of being a part of Israel and especially a prophet in Israel. But For me, the deepest lesson from this is that we generally attribute to God the giant things in life. So people will say, God sent the pandemic, or God gave me cancer, or God is on our side in the war. Some giant event that we assume God is superintending, the earthquake, the fire, the wind. And in my own experience, and I think in the experience of most people I know, God is much more intimate and personal than that. The Hebrew, kol Daka, literally translated, a kol is a voice, domain means silent, an inanimate object in modern Hebrew is called a davar domain, and dak is thin. So it's really the thin voice of silence. In other words, God operates from within you. It's not that God is arranging the externals of the world all the time so that we do what God wants. This idea of God is much more compatible with free will and free choice and sin and redemption to me. Because if God's always coercing the externals, we don't really have the choice to decide what to do. But if God is inside of us and we can listen to that voice and we know what is inside of us and what is right and don't do it, then that's the God that I understand who gives us the chance to hear, but also the chance to ignore. And so Elijah didn't have a choice about the earthquake. He didn't have a choice about the wind. The question was, would he listen to that small voice? And he did. So I feel this to be in some ways the sort of paradigmatic example of what the Torah tells us about how God works, maybe not in the times of the Bible, but in our own day. So by speaking in either a thin voice of silence or a still small voice, God was saying, I'm ignorable. Yes. Oh, that's a great way to put it. I am ignorable. And if God is not ignorable, then there is no merit in paying attention to God. The whole point of being able to pay attention to God, it's just like the Torah. What makes the Torah so wonderful is you can close it and ignore it if you want. But if you open it and study it, then it's inexhaustible. I mean, a hundred lifetimes can't exhaust it, as we've seen through the Jewish tradition. Right. I I believe that Baal Shem Tov said we've not yet begun to study. Exactly. So if you don't have the choice, then it doesn't mean anything. And that's very Jewish because also it gets to the nature of prayer. If prayer was the code that unlocked the great ATM machine in the sky, there'd be no such thing as faith. Exactly so. 
you and I've had this discussion before. If, you know, if every time you did something wrong, you got punished, then you would never do anything wrong because you don't want to get punished. The whole virtue of living a good life is the living of it. There's that great story. I've heard it attributed to Mother Teresa. I, I don't know if it was actually started with her, but it's a great story, whoever it was, that she was treating a leper in Calcutta. And a woman behind her said, oh, my God, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And Mother Teresa said, neither would I. That's right. Ellie Beer has said the same thing. When people come to us with Hatzal all the time and say, why don't you create a business model around it? Ellie said, you can't pay people enough to get up at three o'clock in the morning to go treat their neighbor in need. But if you inspire them, they'll do it for free. Yes. Which is such a beautiful, I, I wish the whole world could hear that. Because it's true. And, and it's the one thing, by the way, that also transcends the real, the anger and the division and so on, is if you give people an opportunity to be good, they will be good for the sake of being good. But it's very hard for us to believe that. And so we have that option. I remember there was a book written a long time ago by a sociologist called Alfie Cohn called Punished by Rewards. And it talked about the fact that if you keep rewarding people for doing things, you destroy the intrinsic joy of doing it. So to do a mitzvah just for the sake of the mitzvah is so much more satisfying than doing a mitzvah and getting a $5 bill. And I think that, that this is the place better than anything else that explains how subtle God is in our lives. So how do we hear God in our lives? How do we hear that still small voice or that thin voice of silence? So I think that there are I mean, different people in different ways. Some people do it through silence and meditation. Some people do it through action, which is a very Jewish way of doing it. You know, the mitzvah itself makes you realize things you didn't realize. And by the way, this is one of the things I think that the pandemic has hurt a lot is I've now had, I don't know how many people say to me, they went out to the supermarket or they sat in their backyard social distancing from somebody and they didn't realize how much they missed people. Because if you sit at home alone, you forget the tremendous joy that you get from interaction. And so sometimes the action itself provides the opportunity to hear what it is you're supposed to do. Is that the phrase, one mitzvah leads to another? Yes. Mitzvah gorered mitzvah. I was going to say, mitoch shalolishma balishma. You do it at first not for the right reason, and you end up doing it for the right reason. But they're very related. And I'll, I'll give a personal example. And I really think that this, for me, this is God speaking in my life, even though someone else may not think so. My daughter for years has been making fun of me because I will say, I can't believe I have to go out and do a wedding tonight. I mean, I'm tired and it's a Saturday night, you know, especially in the summer, it starts so late and I don't like to stay up late. I'm an early person. I go to bed early. I get up early. And she said, dad, every time you say this, you come home and I say to you, how was it? And you go, that was so great. I had such, it was so wonderful. It's such a great mitzvah to be able to join people in marriage. So sometimes the doing of it tells you what you need to hear. And I think that's why God sends Elijah back. It's like, go back and you will see in the fulfilling of your task in this world, you'll hear the voice that is silent if you don't move. Now, this also gets, I believe, and you've quoted this, the Kutzker Rebbe, who was asked, why does it say, these words shall be on your heart rather than in your heart in the Shema. And he says, because you have to open your heart. They don't, they don't just come automatically, you open your heart. Exactly. They should just sit there and there will be a time when your heart is open and you'll be able to let them in. And I think everyone knows that's true. I mean, how many lessons do we know that it has to await the right moment in your life to realize them and before you didn't? And 
I think that that certainly has happened here. The power of human interaction, we realize in a way that I don't think we ever did before when we were starved of human interaction. And those words are really in people's hearts now. They're like, I want to see you. I miss you. I want to hug you. I want to all of that because right now those words have sunk down into our hearts. So how many Elijah moments do you think people have every day? Like how many opportunities do we have to hear that still small voice and just ours for the taking that we can either accept or as we discussed, ignore? This is a wonderful question. And I would guess that some Elijah moments are given and some are created. So there are times when there are just moments in our lives when such a thing happens. And then there are, I'm going to go out and I don't think you can force the moment, but I think you can create situations in which such moments could happen. So as an example, when I go out to do a wedding, a funeral, a bar mitzvah, some, a, a significant moment of life, I know that I'm going to have the opportunity if I'm alive to it, almost always, not always, but almost always, to have those kinds of moments because people's hearts are going to be open at transitional times of life. But sometimes they're a complete surprise. Sometimes you just have that instant. I have it now. I go walking very early in the morning. And they're always the same people who are walking in the neighborhood at, you know, 5.30 or 6 in the morning. And when we see each other, it's profound. It's not just like, oh, hi, how are you? Because we share a certain, like, because of the situation of the world, we're here and we're, we, we always cross the street to the other side when someone else is there. But there is a moment, it ties in very much to the boober I thou, of real connection and power that takes you back to God. Let's say someone goes to the supermarket. As Jews, we believe nothing is mundane. We don't believe anything's pedestrian, but let's just take the most mundane thing we could think of. Like you go to the market, you do whatever the most uh, routine activity of the day is. Now you talked about how sometimes Elijah moments happen, sometimes they're created. How would we create an Elijah moment in a routine or mundane event, if it's possible? Okay, so here's the supermarket. I'll give you the supermarket example because this happened to me about two years ago and I, it made such a profound impression on me. I came to the checkout counter and the woman saw that I had a kippah and she starts to look at my food funny. And, and I thought, oh no, here we go. And she was an African-American woman and she was clearly disturbed by something. So I thought, what am I going to hear? I'm not going to like this. But I just stood there and she's examining each package and putting it down and examining each package and putting it down. Finally, she looks at me and she goes, are you Jewish? And I said, yes. She said, I thought so because you have that thing on your head. I said, yeah, it's a kippah. I'm Jewish. And she goes, I was being really careful with your food because I know that if you keep kosher, it's not supposed to touch other things that aren't kosher. So that's why I was picking it up from the belt to make sure it didn't. And I was, I can't tell you, like the emotion that flooded me of gratitude and of closeness to her. I told her how grateful I was. And it was just a beautiful moment. And it was the exact opposite of what I and my, you know, immediate leaping to conclusions had assumed I was going to get. And for me, God was present in that moment when two people connected because of the kindness and consideration of one. So you never know. You're right. In the most pedestrian circumstances, you can have one of those moments. And imagine how one's life would be transformed if you actually woke up in the morning and said, 
I could have 10 Elijah moments today. Like I, I could actually feel the presence of God, not in a metaphorical sense, not, in, I don't like the word, not in a spiritual sense, but actually feel the presence of God because he's there because he's in the still small voice and, and with a thin voice of silence. Like, I, I could do 10 times today and it's, and it's a reasonable ambition. How would you feel at the end of the day? It's beautifully said. And that's why this verse, I think, is so important, because if what you expect to feel when you feel the presence of God is lightning and thunder, then you won't feel it. But if what you expect to feel is this uplift and this sense of depth and this sense of there's something greater than us that we're participating in, then yes, you can feel it many times a day. And how much happier you would be. I mean, if, if, if you were actually greeted by God 10 times a day and you knew it like you were, you, like you were in that moment, think of how much happier and more grateful. And if you're more grateful, how much better you would be. And it's actually not that hard. Like nothing in the Torah is hard because the Torah is a great guidebook. And so it wouldn't be a very good guidebook if it was really hard to do. No, and it's, it reminds me of that story. I mean, I heard the story years ago as a rabbinic story, although I don't think I've ever found a source for it. But if anybody does, let me know about there is a monastery and they're fighting all the time and all the brothers are at each other's throats and they hear that there's a wise rabbi in the town. So one of them goes to the rabbi and says, we're always fighting and we don't know what to do. And the rabbi says, well, I have a great secret about the people in your monastery. And he says, what? And he says, one of them is destined to be the Messiah. He goes, really? One of us is destined to be? He says, yes, one of you is destined to be the Messiah. And he goes back and everybody treats everybody differently. They all treat each other with kindness. And of course, that was not the truth. It was just like, if you treated people as though they were images of God or the Messiah or whatever, you can bring God's sense of presence down into the world if you treat people in a way that is full of decency and kindness. But yeah, if that's how we started out the morning, but also it's a very counter narrative to what we see going on around us. I mean, look, both of us have watched what both sides of the political divide are saying about the other people on the other side. And it makes it very hard to find this space where human beings can just be human beings instead of oppositional. Right. Now, getting back to what you were saying before about how after Elijah has this remarkable conversation with God. God says, now go out in the world and create change. Because you made the point that we Jews, we don't go to the mountaintop. And in fact, I believe it was your, your colleague, it was one of your sermons I listened to on the web, your colleague Brad Artson made that point at one of your Rosh Hashanah sermons, where he tells the story about Melvin on the mountaintop and said, that's not a, we don't have Melvins on the mountaintop who experience God in solitude at the mountaintop. But that's not us. And actually, you see the same thing in Devarim 1, where it says, Hashem, our God, spoke to us at Horeb, at Sinai, saying, enough of your dwelling by this mountain. And not only that, but I just recently came across a commentary that I had never seen before, where the Orachayim says about Abraham, when Abraham argues for Sodom, that, you know, what if there are this many righteous people, that many righteous people, so on, and then eventually God destroys the city, the Orachayim says, Abraham might have saved the city if he had moved into it. And I thought, what a Jewish comment. What a beautiful comment. In so many ways, because he's criticizing Abraham. Exactly. He's criticizing Abraham. He's saying, you know, if you had taken the ultimate move of actually getting into the middle of Sodom, you might have been able to change that place. In fact, I had someone write me and say, I've never seen such a, where is it? Like, it's 1833, I believe, is the, is the verse. For those who want to check the Orachayim, who was, uh, I remember, Eli Wiesel's loved the Orachayim. I remember he spoke about that when he was in my shul years ago. Blessed memory. But I just thought that was such a great point is that if you want to change something, you don't change the people on the other side by yelling at them. You change the people on the other side by accepting them, understanding them, and talking to them and trying to get them to understand 
your own point of view. Right. But do you help them by praying for them? Or even more broadly defined, is prayer as a religious experience overrated? I would say it's, can I say it's wrongly rated as opposed to overrated? How should it be rated? People expect the wrong thing from it. I have the answer to prayer. I can't wait to hear it. I can say that because it doesn't come from me. Well, you will have heard this before, but nonetheless, I realized what prayer was all about. I think it was in Mark Saperstein's collection of sermons from the Middle Ages where I found it. So Leona Medina, who is an Italian rabbi of the, I think after the Renaissance, maybe the 1700s, said, this is the problem with prayer is if you're standing on a shore and you see a man in a boat pulling the boat towards the shore, if you are mistaken about mechanics in motion, you might think that he was pulling the shore to the boat. And the problem with prayer is people think they're pulling God to themselves. I want this, so I'm going to change God's mind and God will give me this. And in that sense, prayer is way overrated because I don't believe that God will say, oh, David asked for this, so I'm going to do it. He said, the reality is, if you pray properly, you're pulling yourself towards God. You're pulling the boat to the shore. And if that's true, then prayer's not overrated. It's just misunderstood. And I really believe that I'm a better person for having prayed. And if that's true, then my prayer was answered, because that's what I'm praying for. But the purpose of prayer is to transform you, and it's to help you become a better person. So uh, I really believe that. But if you want to help somebody else, you got to act. You got to act. And you can pray for them because when people told me, for example, when I was sick that they were praying for me, I thought that that was beautiful. And it did give me a sense of courage and faith. And we know our friend Ellie, when he knew how many people were praying for him, I'm sure that gave him internal strength and helps. But ultimately, of course, you still need the doctors and you still need the medicine and and you got to act for people. You've got to take care of them. Ellie did value those prayers, but what he valued a lot more were contributions to United Hatzalot. But made in his honor in the same moment, regardless of their size, just the number of contributions, he valued that a lot more than he did the prayers. Even though he said he valued the prayers, I know how much he valued the number of contributors. That's right. In his honor, in that moment of vulnerability. Because that's actually doing something also. A prayer is, in quotes, easy. But to actually, you know, put your money where your mouth is here, quite literally. It's an action. So moving on from one text, one sacred text of the Bible to another text. Now, you're going to be very familiar with the second text. This is always a concluding question because I learned about this text, one of your sermons. I believe you've quoted this text uh, several times. The quote is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And I'll just tell the story for the listeners. I know you know it. But uh, Andre Malroux says that, uh, he said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in, this, in the war. And this man had uh, saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, that everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So David, in your more than three decades as a rabbi and as the son of another great rabbi, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? I think that the first thing that I've learned I've grown increasingly less judgmental of people because I have been exposed to people whose ideas are radically different than mine. And when you speak to them enough, if you actually get to know them, you understand why they see the world the way they do. And that makes them very different from the demonization of being on the outside. That's the good part of people is that most people see themselves as the heroes of their own story. They don't see themselves as the villains that people outside sometimes. The other thing that I've learned is we have, and I certainly include myself, I am not excluding myself, we have a much greater capacity for self-deception than 
I would have ever believed when I was a kid. I thought you get older, you figure it out, you become honest with yourself. But the ways in which we twist reality to accommodate the story that we need to be true is stunning to me. And that's why I think returning to the tradition and to something solid and something stable over and over again is intended in part to act as almost a correct, almost like tuning the instrument so that you realize, oh, that chord that I've been playing, it doesn't actually sound right. I thought it did, but it doesn't. That's why love needs law. Because when, when we love something, that's when we're, we're most likely to convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing, that we are right. That's why we need the rules and the law so that we can love well. Exactly so. I think that people's stories are different from what we assume and that all of our stories are a little fakakta as the Yiddish has it. They're a little messed up. That's right. Well, David, thank you for, as always, such a magnificent and instructive and truly wise, wise conversation. Thank you so much. And as always, I learned so much with you. So uh, thank you. And I do from you constantly. Well, thank you. Great to see you. Great to see you too.